I'd like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We have been there before, and we will go there again. John chapter 8 and verse 31 and 32. Jesus speaking to his disciples said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And in verse 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, we're talking about being liberated. I thought last week would be the last message in this series. But as I was putting all these notes away and I thought of one more subject that needs to be addressed to Christian people because in this one area, which is so simple and much in the Bible about it, many Christians are bound and they're really not free in this area. And it's an area that some of us have to work at and really deal with in order to get free. And that is giving. The biblical principles of giving. Letting go of what you've got to or for or the sake of the well-being of somebody else. Let's go back to where we started, talking about liberation. Jesus said you shall be free. Now, to be free is to be liberated. All of us, when we came to the Lord, were bound. We were bound by fears, habits. We were controlled by things. We were just not free. And Jesus set us free. We read in the Bible how Jesus liberated us, what He did at the cross. He paid a price that set us free from the power of sin and death and brought us to Him. But having brought us to Him, we've come to realize that I still have a difficult time living the Christian life. There's still something that wants me to go back and do what I used to do. And there's still something that wants me to lose my temper and act the way I used to act. And I realize that though I'm free, I'm in a real struggle here to maintain my freedom. Because liberation is to set free from imprisonment or bondage. To be liberated is to be released. I don't want to have those things hanging on me anymore. I don't want to be ugly acting. I don't want to feel insecure. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want all that stuff hanging on me. I want to be free, just like the Lord wants me to be free. Not free to sin, but just free from all these things that hold us down and keep us from enjoying life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it abundant. And abundance doesn't include all these things that hold people down and make us ugly and mean and give us bad reputations. We need to be free from all of that. And so to get free, we found that you have to guard your mind. This is where the devil starts, just in your mind. Puts thoughts in your mind, ideas in your mind. Revenge, get even, unforgiveness, hate. It all begins with the mind. It's a choice, but it begins with thoughts. You've got to guard your mind. The second thing you have to do is you have to guard your mouth. Because your mouth gets you in as much trouble as the law allows. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And by your words, you're justified. Or by your words, you're condemned. And you're snared, Proverbs says, by the words of your mouth. We say things we should not say. Now, that was our choice. We did it willingly, but... That snares us because it opens the door to the devil. And you need to know that. 
that just because you're a Christian, because you came forward and you've been set free or saved, it doesn't mean the devil doesn't stop attacking you. Churches are full of people that are not free. You can tell by the way they talk they're not free. They talk about what they're afraid of, the fears, the sickness, disease. Aging, the cost of this, the cost of that. What will happen if? And I don't know where are we going with this. And, and just all these bundles of problems that they don't know what to do with. You're not free if you can't release those things and get rid of that. You don't deny the reality of it. They are out there. All these problems are there. But you do not have to cave into them because God has given you a solution. God has in His Word told you how to deal with stuff in life. And... Many times, your lack of faith in God is evidenced by what you say. You betray yourself with your mouth. A third thing that we mention in being liberated is you have to guard your faith. Your faith. That's what makes it all work. Anybody can say, I believe God, but not everybody does believe God. You can tell by how they live. They don't believe Him. They believe He is, but they don't believe in Him. They know he exists, just like somebody said one time, well, you all don't believe in doctors. Well, of course we believe in doctors. It doesn't mean you trust them. You certainly believe in them. I believe in trees and hills and water and streams and cars and trucks and cats and dogs. But when you talk about a higher level of what we're talking about, I talk about trust. My trust is in the Lord because he has promised what nobody else can promise, that he will deliver me. That he will protect me, he will cover me and keep me, and no evil shall befall me, and no plague come nigh my dwelling. And concerning me, he will give his angels charge, and they will keep me in all my ways. I can't buy that anywhere. Nobody in the world can give you that. Nobody in the world can back that if they did give you that. It's all about the fact that God has made thousands of promises. Not to the world, but to Christians. We can only appropriate them by faith. And the devil knows that. And he knows that once you learn how to operate your faith and put into practice the things that God says or bring the things of God to bear, he knows that he can't defeat you anymore. That's why the Bible said, resist the devil by faith. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, the devil has desired thee that he might sift you as sweet. But Jesus said, I have prayed for you, what? That your faith fail not. It's the one thing you have, but it's the one thing that God watches over and causes to work. Then last time we finished up on you have to watch your associations. You've got to watch who you run around with. You've got to watch who is in your space, who you listen to, who encourages you, who inspires you, or who corrupts you. Paul writes, you know, bad company, evil company corrupts good morals. You get to hang around people that want to do things that you should not do. And the reason you don't stop doing it is because you like their fellowship more than you like your testimony. You know, if you told them what you believed, they might not want to hang around you anymore. And so you back off. And in that way, they corrupt you. Now, today is giving. That's one of those subjects that everybody loves to hear about. Actually, giving is something that simply means that you give of what you have or you present voluntarily that which is yours without a desire for recompense. You're giving something without expecting anything back. That's the nature of God. God so loved the world that He what? That He gave. 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. And yet a lot of people have hang-ups when it comes to giving. It seems like with some people, not all, but some, the more a person has, the more they're blessed, the more money they get, the harder it is for them to let go. It was easier to give when you had little than it was when you had much. And so when you begin to restrain yourself from being generous and responding to God generously, if he so asks you for it, when you get to a place where you dread doing that and you're giving is grudgingly, you're bound. Because a person who can't give, any stingy person, any tight person is bound. Because your whole life is about either making money or keeping money. And the idea that you're going to give something that you worked hard to get to somebody else who maybe in your estimation is not doing as well as they could, and you have a hard time because of the way you reasoned that, and you can't give, and you hold it back, well, you also robbed yourself of a blessing. You've robbed somebody else of a blessing, but you robbed yourself also. Giving. It's hard for some people to leave a tip. The lady waiting on your table may have a tough time in life trying to get ahead. Who knows what the background is? She's doing a good job, or maybe he's doing a good job. I don't know. And they really do hope they get a tip over and above the $2 an hour they get or whatever they make because they count on tips to make their money. Sometimes God just impresses you on your heart to give them a nice tip. And you think, well, I can't do that. I don't. And then so, see, you cannot do what God tells you to do because you're bound by something in you that wants to keep. You're trying to get, and once you get, it's mine. It's mine. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then come, take up the cross and follow me. And the Bible said he went away sorrowful. See, my wealth is me. I'm known by being well-to-do and have a lot. I'm a rich man. And, and if I don't have that, I'm reduced to nothing. And what will I do then? And they couldn't see that God would take care. God would never ask you to leave something and follow Him to damage you. Everything that God gives us to do is always for our good, always and forever for our good. But a lot of people just have a hard time giving. Churches, for example. See, money is a sensitive subject. Now, how many times do we teach on this in a year? I looked the other day, I haven't taught on this subject in 10 years. So if you're a visitor today, you got here at the wrong day, I guess. <laughs> but I'll guarantee you this. If you don't teach on this subject, then you haven't taught the whole counsel of God. And if people haven't been informed how to rightly deal with God financially, then you haven't brought them the whole counsel. Because everybody in this room needs to learn that everything you have is God's. And giving something away is simply giving what he gave you. But let me go back to where I started here about money being a sensitive subject. A lot of times churches preach on money all the time. They hint at having money all the time. They take them special offerings every week or every two weeks or something. And there's always this, you know, we've got this need coming up. See, churches have extended themselves into the debt process. And they owe so much money for the building you're meeting in and you admire so much. And they spend so much money on it. They glamorize it. It's somewhat gaudy. 
And it's way more than you need. Way more than is necessary. But people like that. They like to go to the place that's got some pizzazz to it. It's got a little bit of richness to it. And they like the idea of all the exciting colors and the designs and the, the way it's made. is All of this touches a man's soul. It doesn't touch his spirit, but it touches his mind, his intellect. And it makes him think he's in a good place because, after all, look what we got here. Without regard for the fact that you owe $10 million debt on this building. And if you don't keep all these people in here, if you don't keep them happy, they'll quit giving. Because people tend to give on the basis of how they feel about something. Or on the basis of who has a need. If the church has enough money or you think they do, they don't need yours, so you keep yours. You haven't learned something yet about what belongs to God. But churches have overextended themselves. They've gotten themselves in such a hole financially that they speak on money and then it's just like money, money, money. You listen to a radio preacher or a TV preacher and it seems like they can't leave this subject alone. They have a commercial halfway during the program. I saw one of them in the middle of a sermon and there was a pause. We'll be right back. And then there's a preacher sitting at a desk with a book. I have here perhaps the most exciting information of revelation that God has ever given. And if I didn't think this was important, I would not come to you today with this earnest desire that you get this book because you need this book. Now we're going to make you an offer. <laughs> now, books make a lot of money. If you sell a big book and you're a bestseller, there's a lot of money involved there. But when you have to resort to those kind of things to get people to give, then people don't give as they should. They have to be enticed or exhorted to give in a way that's not in harmony with the Word of God. Many people in the church get uneasy when you talk about money because they're in debt. They spend more money than they make. They're strained at home right now. They can't afford to give. They will say, I know I should put some money into the offering container. I tell you what, we're not even going to pass the bucket this morning. We're not going to pass... We're not passing anything this morning. If you don't want to give, don't. That's your business anyway. But we're going to pass nothing this morning. So y'all, the deacons can put your pans down. We're not going to pass them. But people are just strapped with so many money problems. All their credit cards are maxed. They're on the edge with this. They're on the edge with that. The car payment, the boat payment, the house payment mortgage, a vacation they just had, the birthday presents they just bought, or the vacation they just took, and all those bills, they do come in. And you sit there and you think, how am I going to pay all of these bills? There's a group called Christian Debt Solutions. They had two or three interesting observations. Apparently they have done a survey, and this is what they found. Among many things that they found, I thought this was interesting. The average young married couple with children is spending 8% more than they make. Well, that means you can be in the government. <laughs> means we can put you in Washington now. If you spend 8% more than you make, you're where they are. Our country's in trouble today because our government, by its tax breaks and its conveniences, they encourage you to borrow. 
this fiasco of a few years ago, borrowing and no money down, buying a house of $300,000, you make 30000 It has led to so much financial foolishness. I don't know how, if they ever will get out of it. I don't fret myself at night about what they're going to do because I know that God is in charge of everything, especially my life. And he'll provide all of our needs, whether we're in distress or duress or not. But the average young couple with children spends 8% more than they make. I have met very, very few young folks who can manage credit. They almost live by a credit card, and if they buy anything, they buy it on a credit card and almost never are able to pay that debt off at the end of the month. Almost never. You're being foolish. And because you do that and you're inspired to live like that, you're opening up a door to bondage. You are. Because a lot of things that God would have supplied for you had you done it His way, they won't come now. Not until you get it right. This is another point. Debt-induced financial stress is the number one cause of divorce. That's not the only cause, but debt-induced financial stress. She blames him, he blames her. We'll send that back. Well, you send yours back. Well, if you wouldn't be so well, if you weren't so. And all of a sudden, all that love and tenderness is gone. Why? Because of money. Money. So don't tell me it's not a big subject. It is a great big subject. You work so many hours a year, you spend 23% of your life working, you spend 29% of your life. If you sleep seven hours a day, you spend 29% of your life sleeping. So 51% of your life is working and sleeping so you can make money. So it's a big deal. Most of your life is involved in gathering for yourself money to live on. When you don't manage that well, it takes advantage of you. It comes up on you. Also in this survey, over 50% of Americans report difficulty in making minimum payment on credit cards. Half. If you were in America, it would be like this. Half of you in here that have credit cards cannot even meet minimum payments every month. Now, shame on you. Now, in all your Christian learning, all your Christian going and doing, you forgot something. Or you left something out. Or you let something talk you into go ahead, oh, it's all right, and you spend it anyway. And you can't even make a minimum payment. I had a chart in my files that I found how long it would take you to pay off $3,000 debt if you only made a minimum payment and how much money you would have paid back to that credit card company if you made the minimum payment every month. And I think this is foolishness spelled backwards. This is ignorance. Why would you have such a covetous urge for all this stuff? But you look at the advertisement. You can have this. You can have this. No money down. No payments until 2012. I don't know how they do that. Or this and that. No interest. And people are lured by that. And they jump into that. But it always catches up with you. It always does. I don't believe in debt for myself. I know this, that if there was a debt, and I've said this before, if there was a debt I was going to have, it'd be for a house. And if I had to have a car, I might go for an older used one to make ends meet to do that. But 
That's only because it'd be a necessary place to live or necessary something to drive. But even then, you get in trouble. If you rent, when the Lord comes, you can get out of here. You don't have to pay anybody nothing. I'm just saying that money, while it may be a sensitive subject to a lot of people and may be a little uneasy, it's a big deal in a lot of people's lives. It causes a lot of trouble, the mismanagement of it. And if anybody thinks that this morning, from what I'm going to say here in a minute, because you might think it, but if you think that any of this is trying to get you to give more money to me or to this church, I don't want you to give a nickel this morning. Walk out of there, look at the box, and say, God bless you. And walk on out. Because it's fruit that bears witness and good to your account that we're after. That's Philippians 4 and verse 7. When it comes to all these debt things and money things, listen at these stats. The average church member gives 2% to the church, 12% to entertainment. Let me say that again. The average church member, we're not talking about you, of course, but we're talking about all them other people. The average church member gives 2% of his income to the church, and he gets 12% to entertainment. Going, doing, having fun, buying, selling, doing, all those kind of things, places you go. A national survey said this, the 80% of all the funds in a church are given by 20% of the people. Let me say that again. 80% of what comes in in the offering is given by 20% of those present. Now, somebody would say, well, maybe those 20% are making a whole lot of money, and they can't. That might be exactly the way it is. I'm just telling you what these statistics said. And the remaining 20%, you know, 80% is given by 20 and the remaining 20% of the money in a church is given by 30%. And according to this little survey here, 50% of the people in any given church are not regular givers. Now, if you read the Bible very carefully, you're going to run into the subject of giving. Now, what you do with it, I don't know, but you're going to run into it. And God's going to speak to you about giving. Because I do not believe you are liberated unless you're liberated financially. I do not believe that if you can't give, if you can't give, I don't think you're free. See, to so many people, money is like a little God. If I have money, I have success. I am somebody. I am noticed, maybe admired, looked up to. I'll be voted in. I'll be invited. Because to many people, money means success. Big home, the big car, the boat, the vacations, the clothes, and all the things that seemingly point to success. How many of you know that you can have all of that and be destitute spiritually. You can be the wealthiest soul in the world and be a pauper. You can be an absolute beggar before God, even though you own great amounts of resources. And if you cannot first give yourself to God, chances are you won't give anything you have to God either, except when you get convicted by it. Because you see, money does mean success to a lot of people. It does corrupt a lot of people because it tells them, I can have things in this life. I can buy things. I can go places. I can do things. 
I've got money. And yet, they're not the people who give. That's a tragedy. You see, Proverbs 10, verse 15 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. And Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that he that trusteth in riches shall fall. Have you ever known in your community a rich man who was sad? I have. I've lived here longer than anywhere I've ever lived in my life. But I've known in places I have lived, people who were pointed out to me as being rich, and they looked so sad, they weren't happy. They were hoarding up all they could get. And when they die, somebody else enjoyed it. What a tragedy that God gives us richly all things to enjoy, and we get a lot of these things, and then we can't enjoy it because we're afraid we're going to lose it. And yet giving is losing it. You're giving it away. It's not yours anymore. And a spirit works on people and so says, don't do that. Man, you worked hard to get that. Oh, don't give it away. And consequently, they don't give. And I think in some places, that's why the preachers fret themselves so much about how small the offerings are. Because people don't basically give. Two percent of their income. Now, that's not true in all churches. I don't think it's true here. I can't prove it because I don't have a clue how much anybody gives here. Most of what is given here is in cash. And so if you don't wrap a rubber band with your name around it, I have no idea who gave it. And I'm really glad I don't. Because sometimes somebody puts more than you would think somebody would put in an offering. And I'm glad I don't know who gave it. Because I don't have to say, oh, how are you? Are you, are you, are you? you don't have to do all that stuff. I don't think I could do that well anyway. But to begin with today about giving, two things I want you to see. Number one, to be free, liberated, is to see that all that you have belongs to God. Now, instead of you seeing all of what you've got is mine, you need to see that it all belongs to God. Now, to show you something about that, I want you to turn to First Chronicles in the Old Testament, First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. In this chapter, David is making preparation for Solomon, his son, to build the tabernacle. It's quite an elaborate thing that they're going to do. They've never had one on this dimension, and David is making things up. For example, in verse 2, he said, I, David, personally, I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God. He gives gold and wood and everything else, clothing. In verse 3, moreover, now listen to this. This is a clue here. Moreover, because I have set my affection." Upon the house of my God, I have of my own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given the house of God, over and above all that I have prepared for the holy place for the house. You notice in verse 4, he says, even 3,000 talents of gold. This is interesting. 3,000 talents of gold by one human being. I would say he had more than anybody else. Because you stop and think... One ounce of gold today is about $1,200. That's today. One ounce. Now, there's 16 ounces in a pound. I Googled it. Nobody agreed. One of the Jewish 
sources said that a talent was like 131 pounds. Another one said a talent was like 66 pounds. Well, I just made it 60 because that's very conservative. If one talent is 60 pounds, 60 pounds times 16 ounces per pound times $1,200, 3,000 times. It was like $3.5 billion. How would you like to unfold your wallet <laughs> and peel off three and a half billion at only 60 pounds per talent? If it's 131 pounds, then you got to up the ante. Where did David get all that money? Because today they would vote that out. No, no, no. Ain't no man ought to have that much. We need to do something about this. Can you imagine one man had that much money? It never says that he tried to get it. It's just people gave it. He was a king, and it came in. He had thousands of these and thousands of that. Cattle, sheep, camel, donkeys, lands. Unfortunately, other wives, I guess, like Solomon. He had everything. But he had a heart for God. And when it came time to build unto God the magnificent temple they were going to build, he poured out of his own treasury just gold, not silver, just gold, $3.5 billion at a very conservative estimate. Now, I would say that David was a giver. But let's go on in this verse. In verse 12, both riches, this is what I want you to see, both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Where does anything we have come from? You would have nothing if it weren't for God. All strength and might and power, everything we have, riches of verse 12, both riches and honor. And these people gave and gave and gave, and then he said this, verse 13, Now therefore, our God, we thank Thee and praise Thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of Thee, and of Thine own have we given Thee. Everything comes from God. David looked at all of his sheep and camel and his resources and his gold, wherever he kept all his stuff. And he knew this. Now, Christians don't apparently know it, but he knew it. He said, Lord, everything any of us have came from you. The clothes on your back, the money in your pocket this morning, it all came from God. How many believe if God didn't want you to have anything, you wouldn't have it? But what about all the people that sell dope and rob people? That's another sermon. But these people are filling up their sins. They will die young and die hard. But again, that's, that's not the subject today. But he said, everything we have comes from you, and we have only given back to you what you gave to us. Who in here has anything that God hasn't allowed you to have? And when he asks you to give something back, you're only giving back to him what belongs to him anyway. I'll tell you how little you own. When you die, you own nothing. When your heart quits beating, you own nothing. And I'll tell you something else about when you die. You don't care who gets it either after you're gone. 
Perhaps you're dead or you don't know who got it. And all the things that people do with regard to fleshly self and covetousness and stinginess and tightness, they never realize as a very basic principle of giving that everything you have is God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And He's given you a portion of it and a part of it, but it's His. And when you died, it's no longer yours. It's still His. And He owns all that. Now, you have to see that. Look at verse 14. Again, at the end of it, For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. I'm going to ask you this morning. Do you believe that what you have is God's? Do you believe if God asks you for something that you have, that you should give it back to Him? Of course you should. What does it say in Matthew 18, verse 8? He said, freely you have received, freely give. There's a certain kind of doubt and fear that we have that if we give something, then we're going to have to do without, not realizing that Jesus said one of the famous principles of giving is give and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. That He will see to it that when you give as He prompts you to give and not with some scheme that somebody taught you to give, but when you give as God prompts you, it will be the Lord's delight to give back to you way more than you gave Him. And I hope in your life, at least when you're my age, you can prove God to do that. Because God did challenge us one time. He said, prove me now herewith. Remember that in Malachi? Prove me here with and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you. In Deuteronomy 28, do this and do this. Hearken to the word, give heed to it and all of that. And he said, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Prove that. And we hoard ourselves. We keep a little bit that we have and we're stingy and tight and wish we had what other people have. We've never learned to give and because of that we're not free. You're controlled by what you have. You're controlled by what you own. And how the devil makes a fool of you. Look at that credit card debt. One day you owe $10,000 on that card. And you look around to see what you got for $10,000. There's nothing there. And somebody's laughing their head off because you've been made a fool of. Everything you have is God's. And God Himself said to us, He said, Your Father knows that you have need of these things, but do it my way, and all these blessings shall come upon you. And yet Christians who heard that, who grew up with that, or listened to that their whole life, they just don't get it. They can't see how that would work, and you have to prove God. The second thing about giving, first one to be the, that all belongs to God, is that to be free, you have to be willing to give willingly. You have to be willing to give back to God as He has given unto you. And He'll prove you there. While you're back in the Old Testament, go to Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 25 and 35. Exodus 25 and chapter 35. Now, in this tabernacle, this first one, Exodus 25 and verse 2, he said, speaking to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Now, an offering is not a tax. 
You don't have to do it. Are you listening to me? He says, tell the children that I want them to bring me an offering. First of all, where would they have an offering to give? These were a bunch of slaves just marched out of Egypt, been slaves for 400 years, been slaves. Now bring me an offering. Bring them what? What would they possibly have? How could a bunch of slaves have anything to give? Where would they get it if they had it? Well, the Bible says that before he led them out of Egypt, they went to the Egyptians who had ruled them for years and told them they wanted their clothes, their jewelry, maybe their pots and pans, whatever they could look around the house and see they had. I want that too. <laughs> and God, who is in charge of all mankind and all of man's wills, what it needs to be done. He told his people, he said, you go and tell them you want this or that. And God is as much saying, and I will cause them to give it to you. And they will not say no. Isn't it good to know that God is in charge? And they went up and knocked on these doors. If they had doors in Egypt, I don't know what they had. Curtain was yanked on or whatever. One of them gaudy looking things, you know, Egypt, you've seen the pictures of them. They came to the curtain or to the door. Say, what do you want? That Hebrew said, I want what you got on. <laughs> and I want all your gold and your silver and all your paint and your shoes. Where did all them slaves get all them donkeys and camels? They sacrificed them in the wilderness. They had thousands of them. Where did they get them? In the backyard, them Egyptians. <laughs> they got it all. They took it. They spoiled them. And so when they got all of this for nothing, nobody earned anything here. People have an abundance they've never had before. They're stiff-necked, of course, but they've got all this stuff they've never had before. And he led them out with riches and abundance. They came out of Egypt having to take the carts and the U-Hauls and everything they could get to haul all this stuff out of Egypt. And God so led them through the wilderness, there was not a feeble one amongst them. Their shoes at their feet never wore out. That's what God can do with a little. That's what God can do with some uneducated nobodies that I, I ain't nobody, I've never done anything. Well, neither had they. These Hebrews were just a bunch of slaves. All they'd ever done is stomp and make bricks. And one day their God said, that's enough. It's time to leave. Go get whatever you want. I'm sure some of them, the timid ones, say, can I have your ring? And they got it. And I'm sure some of them just said, I want the whole nine yards. And they got it. As much as they would ask for, they got it. Asking it shall be given. Now, they're out there in the wilderness. God says, now, we're going to make something out here that's never been made before. I'm going to make me a house. And you are going to build it. Now I want all of you to bring me a, a gift. I want you all to bring me a gift. But these are the only ones I want it from. And the same principle is true today as I speak with us. Notice again. Speaking to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it how. I want to. I want to show my appreciation to God for the good favor 
this week, this year, this month, in appreciation. I'm not buying favor. I'm giving back to God with a grateful heart for the good way that He's led me. All the things I have, it all belongs to God. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Now go to chapter 35 and verse 5. Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it. An offering of the Lord, gold, silver, and brass. What if we said this morning, we're going to receive from you this morning a portion of what you earned this week, great or small, nickels or dollars. But I only want you to give it if you really want to. And if you really don't want to, I really don't want it. Would that be fair? See, that's what God said here. I want you to give if you really want to. I want you to check your heart and see just how grateful or ungrateful you are. But I want you to give because you want to. And if you don't really want to give, if you've got this, oh, you're going to give, or pass the pan, get that dollar. No, I don't want your money. God wants you, not your money. But when He gets you, He gets your money. He doesn't ask for all of it. He'll leave that up to you. When He said, Given it shall be given unto you, good measure pressed out and shaken together, shall men give unto business. The next verse says, For with whatever measuring rod you measure it out, that's the way God will measure it back. If you give a little bit, He'll give a little bit back. You give a lot, He'll give a lot back. It's a chance for you to demonstrate from your heart just exactly how grateful and thankful and willing you are to God. In the same 35th chapter, look at verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, and for all his service, and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing, hearted, and brought all these things, at the end of it says, that offered an offering of gold to the Lord. Willingly. You got to give it not because you feel compelled or of necessity, but you give because you want God to have it back. I appreciate it. Praise the Lord. And you look at your life, you're well this morning, you're whole and healthy this morning. I look at our little church here, we've been together for 30 years now. We've never had, never had to take up an offering to pay for any bill in this church ever. I have never once as pastor, I've never yet had anything turned off because I couldn't pay my bills because my needs have always been taken care of here because God is blessing people. 30 years, we've never had to burden you with, oh, folks, we got to give. I've asked for money for other people, for camps or missionaries or people in the church that have needs on occasion. That's the chance I get to give. I don't put money in a box because I had to count it twice. <laughs> I don't. And there's more to it than that. But this is the way it works. Grateful hearts, thankful hearts, willing hearts. But it comes from people that offer willingly to the Lord. 
If we were to pass our silver pans this morning in front of your face for an offering, and you say, well, here comes a pan. If I don't put something in, the person beside me will think I'm tight. And you put something in, you didn't really want to. So we left the pans in the back this morning. <laughs> didn't really want to. Some folks have said, why don't you take up offering share? We don't have to. It's up to you to give. Nobody knows what you give. Nobody's back there watching. What if I went back by the box and, okay, it's time to give. Y'all come by. Let me see what you're putting in here. Would you feel strained? Or would you say, he's watching, get that 20 out? Jesus did that, didn't he? Didn't Jesus sit beside the offering box? What if you came by and he looked at you and then he looked in there? He said, now, see that lady right there? She gave more than all of them did. Well, they'd be fidgeting around trying to get another shekel out if he was watching. But see, if you put your offering in a place where when you walk by, you can keep walking. Nobody would know you're walking. You can give and nobody has to know. Or you can not give and nobody would know. Only God can see the heart this morning, like in our system here, of how you give. We have never taken up an offering. Now, got to quit saying that because that sounds proud. Maybe we ought to pass that pan one morning and then we can quit saying that. But the fact of it is we've never had to ask for an offering. You give if you want to. If you talk yourself out of say, well, you know, I had a rough week. Didn't get much work this week. And I got three or four bills coming in. I don't know how I'm going to pay them. I just can't afford to give this week. Then with that attitude, don't give. If you had been listening to things you had taught in the past, you would have learned that God gets the first crack at it. If the check is $100, he gets the first crack at it. How much of that does he get? Well, let every man give as he purposes in his heart. Every man as he purposes in his heart. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Because giving is usually centered around this word in the church. This is the word we use when we talk about giving. And it's the tithe. And a lot of folks are restricted to just, well, tithes and offerings. A lot of people think that tithes and offerings is one word, tithes and offerings. You can't Google that up because there is no such thing as tithes and offerings. It's two different words, tithes and offerings. Listen to the words here. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Now God is speaking. Even from the days of your fathers are ye gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Now let's stop. What is the accusation here from God? You're not doing what I told you to do. All right? What I showed you I wanted you to do, you are not doing it because you are unwilling to do it. So he said from the days of your fathers. It's like saying in this book, okay, time out, all of you, listen up. From the days of your fathers, just like they did, you've walked away from mine ordinances, the things I taught you, the way I wanted you to live, the things I wanted you to do, and you have not kept them. Now, many people think, well, that's no big deal. There's a lot of people are like that. But God says it is a big deal because God keeps records. He knows how much. He knows how little. God knows. And he said in verse 7, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. Now, what does return mean? It means come back. 
Has God gone away from His people? He had in the sense of them being favored. In the sense of them being favored. You read the book of Malachi. They grumbled about everything. They offered sick goats to God, sick sheep, because they didn't want to give one of them good ones because they can make money on a good one over here that's healthy, but this one over here with a broken leg and a big growth on the side of his head, well, just kill that thing and give it to God. After all, we're killing an animal. We're sacrificing something. Come on. That was that mindset they had then. And God said, why don't you offer that to your governor and see if he would appreciate you bringing some old diseased animal to him. And yet you bring it to me like I should be glad that you did something that I told you to do, like kill an animal, bring a sacrifice. He said, I don't receive that from you. That's not the kind of animal I told you I wanted. It's going to cost you something to bring me a sacrifice. You've got to sort through all what you got and pick out the best, the one without blemish, the perfect one, the type of Christ. And you have to offer that because nothing else is acceptable. But you think, oh, no, no, no. Come on, man, you, you all want too much. So God said, you haven't kept my ordinances. And he said, you know what? I have departed from you. You're not favored anymore. Things don't go well for you. You look at that credit problem you have or that wife, husband, child problem that you're having and the difficulty that you're having and your attitude that's developing because of these problems. Something's wrong in your relationship to God. And something is lacking in God's relationship with you. And will you ever put together the fact that these things are because you're robbing God? They said in verse 7, Then how shall we return? said, You return to me, I'll return to you. They said, Return how? In what way do we return? And verse 8, he says, Will a man rob God? How can that be? Listen to me. What does God have that you can take away from Him? How can you take something that belongs to God for yourself? Uh-oh, I think I'm getting the message now. You're taking something that belongs to God that is His. And you're making it your own for your own gain or for your own good or your own pleasure. And so He said, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Listen to what he said in one way, in tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. You have gone away from me. And he said, if you have gone away from me, it means you have turned away from my ways. It no longer fits into your lifestyle or you no longer can afford to do it God's way anymore. And therefore, you're determining you're going to have to do it this way and do the best you can and hopefully you can work God back into the equation. He said you're under a curse. You all see the word curse? Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse. Where did the curse come from? Well, it had to be the curse here in the sense that your life is not a life where you're blessed. Nothing really goes well for you. Your pockets have holes in them. Your cisterns have a leak. You make money and you can't keep it. You're not even enjoying it. You look at that credit card debt and you have nothing you can show for $10,000 of credit card debt. You can't show anything. What do you got? 
You've been made a fool of because there's no favor of God in your life, no restraints. You've robbed God, so he's departed. He's okay. If you want to do that way, I told you how to live. Go ahead. So he draws back. And he says, you know what? Now, this is how good he is. He said, you're cursed. you got a curse on your life. Look at how dismal your life is. And look how dismal your attitude is. And your peace and joy doesn't even exist in your family. And in your life and heart, you can't make ends meet and trouble here and trouble there and break down here and it just frustrates you and angers you. You're under a curse. It's a curse. And it's due to one thing. You are taken away from God what belongs to Him. I'm not preaching it to you now. I'm talking about those sad and sorry souls in Malachi. Said you're robbing God. God knew that they had because for 1,500 years He'd been keeping records on all of them. Your fathers, their fathers, and you. I know how much you get. I know how much you make. I know what you do with it. I know the attitudes you have when you try to give it. There's nothing about you that God doesn't know. And how much favor you're going to have with God depends on how much of your heart you have for God. How much He wants to attend to you and your ways and make it well for you. Wouldn't it be nice if goodness and mercy could follow you all the days of your life? What if it doesn't? It's because you've shut the door. But he said, you've robbed me with tithes and offerings. Now, the word robbed, I googled up in a dictionary. Man, I must be high tech. (laughs) Rob means to deprive of something due, expected, or desired. Let me ask you a question concerning our incomes. Surely some portion of our income should be given back to God as at least a thanksgiving offering, shouldn't it? And if that's true, then when you rob God, you are depriving God of what belongs to Him or you are taking away from God what He expected from you or what He desired from you or you're withholding unjustly what is His. Now, surely nobody would do that. But the survey said that Christians do it all the time. That 50% of people in any given congregation do not regularly give to the Lord's work. Now, they didn't say they don't give. They just don't give regularly because most of them have talked themselves out of it. I can't afford it. We just don't have it. It just isn't there. And so they don't give it. They said, you've robbed me with tithes and offerings. Let's look at those two words, tithes and offerings. Now, tithe is simply a tenth. We know that. A tithe was a tenth. And they would give one-tenth of all their increase, their fields, their baskets of their crop, the little things they grew, the little seeds. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe of mint and dill and these little seeds, and they would add them up. They would have a big pile of seeds. They wanted, they'd give it a tenth. They're going to do it right. And they would count those little seeds and say, okay, this is the Lord's. And he didn't rebuke him for that. He said, this you should have done and not left other things undone. Weightier matters of the law, he mentioned. But these people tithe everything. And it was the first fruits of all their increase was called a tithe. And they would bring it to the priest, to the tabernacle, to where the storehouse was going to be. And that's where they would bring all of these things. The tithe was the tenth that was the increase of your abundance. 
Today it would be your money. Today if we tithed and we made $100 a week, we would, when we got to check cash before the government got theirs, you give a $10 bill to the church. Tenth is easy to deal with. I've seen checks in the mail for like $48.61. It'd been easy just to make it round it off. But that's the tenth, if we still do that. Because a lot of people still believe, the New Testament church still believe, that the tithe is what God expects from us. And yet you don't find that in the New Testament like that. But in the New Testament, he said, it's between you. You know, every man as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. If it was still a tithe, he said, no, give the tithe. You could stand before God and give him a measuring rod so he can deal with you the way you're dealing with him. You say, well, I go by the standard of the tenth. Well, that's between you and the Lord. You do that. That's fine. But a tithe is what belongs to God, and an offering is what belongs to God. Offerings were often your cattle. The sheep, all kinds of offerings that they brought to the priest belonged to the priest. It was given to the Lord, but God gave it to the priest. Would you go back to Numbers 18 for a moment? Numbers 18 about tithing. The tithe, where it started and what was involved in it and what it was for. Let's look at the purpose of tithing. This is the purpose. Numbers 18 and verse 20. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part in thy inheritance among the children of Israel. Now, what does that mean? It means that when the twelve tribes came into Canaan's fair and happy land and divided it up, and each tribe had a portion of land, land they could plow, raise their animals, build their houses, and so forth, and do their commerce. One tribe, the Levites, they got no land. The Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe, got nothing. You get no land, no place to build and plant and all of that kind of stuff. Your inheritance is me. This is what God said. Now, to those of you that didn't get an inheritance, I am your inheritance. You will be my priest unto me. You will represent me to the people, and you will represent the people to me. You will be a priest between God and the people. A go-between, an intermediator between the people and God would be the priest. Now, you don't have time to be out there digging in the soil and working all of that. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to represent me to the people and the people to me. To stand before them on my behalf with the things that I give you to say to them. Verse 21. And behold, I have given the children of Levi the tenth of Israel for an inheritance. Now the tenth there is a tithe for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, does your Bible say that the purpose, just in two verses, the purpose of the tent was to support the Levites? They had no other method of support. The Levites depended entirely on the people. And if everybody had a good summer and had a good year and grew a lot of crops, guess who really did well? The Levites. Don't try to hide that. They did. If there were 
10,000 farmers and they had 10,000 blessings in one good year. And they brought all of that. It took a while to bring all of that to the storehouse. The people were bringing to God what God said was His. The tenth is mine. And God says, now the Levites have no inheritance, so I'm giving the tenth to them. So all that you bring belongs to them. It's theirs. It's theirs for food. It's theirs for seed. It's theirs as a reward. I don't think God would call them to be His people and then let them down and forsake them. Look at verse 24. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as heave offerings unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Would that bother you? Go back in this same chapter. Look at verse 11. And this is thine. He's talking to the priest. And this is yours, the heave offerings. Of all the gifts of the people, with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel, verse 12, and the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the wheat and of the first fruits of them have I given unto thee. In verse 13, and whatever is first ripe in the land which they shall bring unto the Lord shall be yours. Every one that is clean in thine house shall eat of it. Everything devoted in Israel shall be yours. This was God's reward for His people. Some of them might have thought, well, why don't we get some land in Canaan here? Why are we left out? And God says, you're going to be mine. Now, your duties are immense because all these people are going to be bringing offerings and there's got to be people that hold these animals while they kill them. How many would it take to hold a bullock? Well, that thing is dying. And the sheep, and they had to clean up the places. They had to get wood for the fire and water for the labor. And they had to deal with all the things that they need. Plus, they had women and children. They had to have food. And what were they going to eat? They couldn't plant a crop. Well, God says, I will give you the best of the land. Would that have bothered you? Well, we need to get a committee together here. That ain't right. That ain't right. Look how much them people got. They had so much they had to build a storehouse. Like a warehouse. They had to build something big enough that they could put all this grain, all this stuff in. What if I told you today that a lot of people in the church are really bothered when somebody does well that doesn't work at an eight-hour-a-day job like everybody else? If a preacher does well, it's because he's got a gimmick or an angle. He's robbing people or something. Many years ago, churches formed governments in the church. And they set the church up like it was a government. And they had voting, and they had officers, and they had overseers. They had a pulpit committee that hired a preacher to keep an eye on him. They told him where he could live and when he could come, when he could go, and how much of the grain he got. And they had this thing called Robert's Rules of Order, how it was dictated the, how the government of the church ran. And the election of deacons and elders every year. I never knew a church not like that. Every church growing up that I ever knew, and most churches I know today are organized like this because we really don't trust each other. Well, what if he got this? Or what if he, what if it? So we have checks and balances in the church so that can't happen. And people think that's okay. But that's not the way God said to do it. As I've said before, the last thing I'm going to take is a salary. Not because I'm proud. It's just that I don't think that's the way it works. 
Well, what if a lot of people were coming and a lot of people gave a lot of money? You expect us to think that you can have it? I don't know what to tell you to expect. I really don't. And I've been here, been doing this a long, long time. I don't know. I know when this little church right here started, there was 20 people in here, and they felt sorry for me. 20 people meant maybe, what, four paychecks? They had children, they, they don't work, and wife doesn't. I mean, just 20 people, maybe four people alone could give, and you might have a $100 offering. And folks said, well, the poor soul. Now, what if God anointed the message? What if one service the Lord gave an anointing for healing? And everybody in that service got zapped. Everybody got healed of something. How many people show up next week? Aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, they'd all be there next week. And what if it happened again? And another two or three weeks, you had 500 people in that place. And nobody now feeling sorry for you. 500 people, well, there's 100 checks in this church. 100 people giving, my, how much are you getting now? Well, we need to organize this. That ain't right. And nobody felt that way when there was only 10 people there. And if God so anoints and gives grace and mercy, and by thus He increases your income, is it wrong? Now, I'll tell you I'm blessed. I'm not boasting, I'm blessed. Not like some of you maybe are, but I'm blessed. In my own little world, I'm blessed. I'm happy as I can be. But I never ask you for nothing. I've never asked anybody in this church for a nickel, not a dime, not once in 30 years. I have totally depended on what came in. I never cried about it when it didn't. There was a time or two that I thought they have forsaken me. <laughs> This was a long time ago. And they always do that when you got these bills that come up and it's the lowest offering of the year. I think, man. I remember one time Brother Fryer came here back in the beginning of when he came here. We just came back from a big Zion Lake camp. The church was packed. Packed. And he spoke that grace, shouting grace, and we were just about ready to run. And the offering that Sunday morning was like $220. And I thought, I cannot give that man $220. Not that he's not worth it, but I can't give him $220 for all that today with this crowd. So I won't say what, but it just made it where he was happy. He didn't ask for a dime. He didn't come here asking for money. Folks, let me tell you something. If God chooses to bless his people and he lays it on your heart to bless them, then that's favor. Now, if somebody has to weasel it out of you, now, Bonnie and I this week, we, we, need a, we have a big need this week. And, you know, our Alaskan trip, the bills came in, and, and uh, <laughs> we just got back from Florida, and, boy, the bills came in, and, boy, we, uh, y'all need to dig deep this morning. No, sir, we don't ever have to do that. But I'm just saying that if God anoints a messenger and people seek the word at his mouth and out of a grateful heart for the word, they give and they're generous. And I'm the recipient of it. Don't look down on me like I'm a thief because I've asked for nothing. But it's God's way of rewarding me. 
We don't have a priesthood today. There's no Levitical tribe here this morning. How would the Jews know today who was a Levite? They'd be scattered for so many, and it was plan of God, because Messiah could have only come when he came, because they could prove then who was of what tribe. I don't think they can today. Maybe I'm missing something there. But we have no Levitical priesthood today. We have no storehouse today where a bunch of us men in the county drag all this stuff. We don't have that. We don't have any rules, any regulations. The law has ceased for us as a way of life. Everything taught there is still applicable for today, the principles and all, but we don't go by the law anymore. We're under grace. And under grace, you're not bound by a number. You're bound by what's in your heart now. If he wants you to give a lot, give a lot. If he doesn't want you to give much, don't. It might not be just a preacher. It might be that needy person in the church that you give to. We'll get to the giving who next week. But there's a lot of different ways that your giving can manifest your giving to God. But in the Old Testament, is what I'm trying to bring out this morning as I close. In the Old Testament, everybody was obligated to bring their tithe to God, which God gave to the priests. And the priests did actually quite well. They were doing very well. And even when they got done with it, tenth, all the tenth, God said to the Levites, whom he gave to the priests to do all the work of the service, he said, I want all you Levites to bring a tenth of the tenth. Would that be a lot? To Aaron. I'd say Aaron was doing good. Wouldn't you? I don't think Aaron was cocky saying, look at how this fits this morning. I think Aaron was just simply doing his job and these blessings came upon him and overtook him. God will never forsake his people nor say he will do something and not do it. Many years ago, as God is my witness, I determined to ask nobody for anything in my personal needs because God said he would meet my needs. We've never done that as a church. We don't have to do it now. I trust God for what I have. I have more now than I've ever had. And I probably, I don't want to say that. I was going to say I give more than I ever have. I won't say that. I've already said it, but I ain't going to say it. <laughs> but the privilege, the joy now is greater. To see the look on somebody's face when you did something or be able to benefit somebody else. I look back 30 years here, folks, and have I been benefited? Have I been blessed? My, yes. There's been many Sundays back in days earlier that we dedicated Sunday offerings to the building fund. My only source of income, other than tapes or occasional something in the mail, is the box back there. When you dedicate that to the building of the church, well, I don't get anything that Sunday. But I didn't plan to. And I wasn't saying, I didn't get my... Well, you're the one who said to put it in there. I'm just saying that we don't have to fret about anything like that. The tithe, the tenth, what you give, it belongs to God. It is all His. And failure to do that is a curse. Every revival in the Old Testament, when they had these revivals, when these kings had discovered things that had been let go... Hezekiah, for example, in Second Chronicles, when they begin to realize 
that the decline of the nation is because of the decline of the priesthood, and the priests couldn't do what they're doing anymore because people weren't tithing. They didn't bring the tenth into there. In Nehemiah 13, he said, go out into the fields and get the priests. They shouldn't be out there plowing. That's not what they're called to do. They should be in here ministering on the behalf of the people. And yet they can't because they don't have anything to eat. They have to, they have to go work. Boy, Nehemiah was tough. He said, you bring in the tithes. And the people saw what he was saying, and they did. And they had more than enough. Hezekiah said, you should not devote yourself to plowing fields. That's not what I gave you to do. When I brought you into this land, you belong to me in the ministry, sort of. Say it that way. Your priesthood. I don't want you out there doing these other things. I want you to read and study. I want you to pray. I want you to devote yourself to that which is spiritual in nature so you can feed these people something spiritual. I don't want your time taken up in other stuff. Is that okay? As you minister to the people and God blesses the people and He blesses you, everybody does well and they do better because that's the way it's supposed to be. But bring all the tithes in the storehouse. How can you do that today? We don't have a storehouse. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a priesthood. But you know what we do have? Ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Who, if they are truly called, if they're called and they're anointed, they really don't have time to go out and work and labor in this world. They're not too good to do that. I know in my own life, I tried to sell cars, tried to sell insurance and something else, and I couldn't do it. Because I'd get through with one little weekend meeting at somewhere, and the phone would ring, that's the truth, and I'd have another one. I didn't have time to do anything but get ready to go, 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 get ready to go. And those were days of testings and rewards. And because you didn't give up and quit because this ain't going to work, I'm not getting enough money to make my ends meet. Travel one night a long way to a place and spoke. and Travel all the way back down to London, Kentucky, where I was. And the church I spoke at in Louisville gave me nothing. Big Methodist, big Methodist church. Because I mentioned tongues. And so I drove home happy that I did my part. I gave them my best. I gave them my best, told them the truth. They don't want to give anything to me. Somebody else will. And they did. I went somewhere else and they gave me more than I was worth. And I thought, how it is that God will never forsake His own. I expected to get further along this morning than we are, but we'll have to take our time here. I'm going to give two more messages on this subject because I think it's that important. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, pray that you'll open our eyes to see what so many haven't been seeing or haven't seen right. Would you open our ears to hear what you're saying and open our hearts to receive whatever you're saying and quit grumbling about anything. There are people here this morning, Lord, who have restless hearts. They're in great need of being set free. And they're bound and don't know it. Don't realize it. But only you can make light from heaven shine in dark places. Whether they be young or old this morning in this room or out there who watch, I pray in Jesus' name that good fruit will come from hearing this message.
that your people's eyes will be opened, their hearts will be stirred, and their conscience will be pricked. And they will be moved to action and return to you and find favor with you. I want to thank you, Lord, for the good years you've given us here. I want to thank you for all the wonderful blessings that you've gave, not just to me, but to us here. We thank you for our health and our healing, for safety and preservation, and all those things we take for granted. You have been good to us, and we thank you for it. Now may your conviction and your blessing rest upon every soul in this room, those that watch and listen, that all of us take a measure, take an examination of ourselves, to hold the plumb bob of your word in the midst of our hearts and to see where we stand in light of what you said. Bless us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.